calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. I'm Brenda. And I'm Orquidia. And together we're Monstras, a podcast dedicated to Latin American and Latino horror, folklore, history, and all things weird. So if you want to know more about monsters like La Llorona, La Ciguanaba, El Obisón, and Cucuy, La Virgen de Guadalupe, Guadalupe? What does she have to do with monsters? Well, listen to Monstras podcast and find out. Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Anne Foster, and this is season five. Our theme is Vulgar History Internationale, Scandaliciousness Without Borders, Tits Out Sans Frontier. And this week, for the first time, I'm pretty sure, running over into the Americas. We're leaving the Eurasian continent for the first time because the plan, the thesis for this season is to share stories from all over the place and to help me find what stories were good and interesting to talk about. I sent out a call to the Tits Out Brigade and Polly D suggested a f- several different figures from Mexican history and that's what's inspired today's episode, which is about Malinzine. So thank you so much to Polly for helping me out by suggesting this and then also for very graciously answering lots of questions I had because this is a story we might have had other ones that were similar levels to of cultural resonance it's kind of kind of like with Inez de Castro where it's just like this is a person whose legacy is so major and still so important to Mexican culture and history she's such a, a well-known figure not just in Mexico, but to lots of people who know about her and her impact in a way that I don't know. So it's really great. Polly helped me um, sort of explain the cultural impact of her. Um, and she also helped me suggest sources to help read. And the main sources that I used were two excellent books. Um, first is both, they're both by Camilla Townsend. 
So the first is a biography, Melanzine's Choices, and the other one is a recent um, award-winning book, actually, um, Fifth Son, A New History of the Aztecs, so both by Camilla Townsend. And I also listened to some several numerous podcasts. I'm going to specifically shout out the Monstras podcast, who really explain the cultural folklore side of things. And I really, um, to learn more about that side, rather than me trying to synopsize it, Badly, I would just suggest you listen to their episode about Melanzine. Um, I also listened to the Project 1521 podcast episode about her. And there's also a really good episode of What's Her Name podcast where they interview Dr. Jeffrey Ritchie. And so these all really, those podcasts really get into the cultural side of this story. What I'm focusing on, what I always focus on in this podcast is kind of biographical information. Who is this person as a person? Although at the end, of the episode, especially when we're talking about significance, I will explain a lot of what I've learned about about the significance of Melanzine to Mexican culture and mythology. So we are going to the area that is now modern-day Mexico. I'm going to probably sometimes call it Mexico just so you kind of can picture where we're looking at. So we're looking at this era at the beginning of the 16th century. So like literally everywhere we've ever looked at ever, it wasn't one cohesive country or empire. It was a whole bunch of little, so city-states and or villages. And there was an empire, but which is known as the Aztec Empire, um, but that did not comprise all of everything. And then there's also the Mayans were in more of the southern part of Mexico. So... This whole story takes place, beginning of the 16th century. So simultaneous to all of this, Saida Alhura, for instance, was doing her thing over in Tetuan. And the culture we're looking at, you probably have heard of them as the Aztecs, but it turns out that's not actually the name of the group. Um, Camilla Townsend, I know I just said her book is called Fifth Son, A New History of the Aztecs. Like, yes, the word Aztecs is in the title, but she explains in the foreword of that book that she put that word in the title because that's the one that people know. And she only really ever uses that term in the foreword to explain why she's not going to use that word for the rest of the book. And I really appreciate her scholarship. And so I'm going to, I'll quote her here. So Camille Townsend says, technically speaking, there were never any Aztecs. No people ever called themselves that. It was a word that scholars began to use in the 18th century to describe the people who dominated central Mexico at the time of the Spaniards arrival. So, in this podcast, like in her book, we're going to refer to this ethnic group that rose to power and had an empire um, by using the name that this group used for themselves, which was the Mexica, which is spelled M-E-X-I-C-A. And that's where the word Mexico comes from. So the Mexica is the group that you probably have heard of before as the Aztecs. Uh, there were other groups there too in Mexico, obviously. And when we get to them, we will refer to them by their their uh, indigenous names as well. So at the time of this story, the Mexica Empire was led by the Emperor Moctezuma, who ruled from the island city of Tenochtitlan. And we're going to learn a lot about him and that island city as we go through the story. So those are the Mexica people, group, empire. So when we're talking about the people spread across central Mexico, not like including the Mexica, but also other people who shared a language and a cultural outlook. We will call them by what they call themselves, the Nahuatl. And their language is Nahuatl, which 
is a language still spoken today in Mexico and elsewhere by their descendants. So it's similar to, and then to the south is the Mayan culture who had various Mayan languages as well. So there's the Nahuatl people, which of which the Machica Empire was part of. The Mayans are separate. So that's the terminology we're using. And the name of the person we're talking about today. So she's commonly known as La Malinche, which is sort of the folkloric cultural name that she came known by. And her name changes several times, changed several times during her life and will change several times in the events we talk about here. In the, like similar to how I'll be calling the people the Mexica people, like we're going to refer to her by the name that she was called by her fellow Nawa, which is Malinzin. So this is to provide continuity. So I'm not like changing her name every time her name was changed. But also in indigenous histories, in her culture, um, when they were sharing this, where storytelling was really important. A king was always referred to by his king name from the moment of his birth, even though he may not have been born with that name. So, and it's similar in other cultures too. Like when you read a biography of like Henry VIII, like when he's born and he's Prince Henry, like people are like, when Henry VIII was a boy, it's like, well, no, he wasn't. Henry VIII at that point. Anyway, just for continuity, we're calling her Malinzin. And this also helps separate the real-life person from the mythic cultural persona known as La Malinche. And again, we're going to talk about that after we go through her story. The focus here is on who was this real-life person. So, Malinzin was born probably around the year 1500. This was eight years after 1492, when Isabella and Ferdinand had financed Christopher Columbus's first trip to the Americas. At this point, Isabella in Spain had been in power for about 30 years. And at around the same time Malintzin was born, Moctezuma became the leader of the Machica Empire. So at this point, the Machica Empire comprised up to 500 small states and about five to six million people, and Moctezuma had become leader of this huge area through conquest or commerce. Malintzin was born in close to the modern Mexican area of Veracruz um, in a village called Uluta on the so it's on the western coast of modern day Mexico. Her, there's a lot of like we think um, about her background so the sources for this are like we don't have diaries or journals or letters or anything from her. So this is all drawn from people writing about her, what they said she told them and kind of what we can infer based on what society was like, how these cultures worked. And this is where I really was impressed with Camilla Townsend's two books, which prioritized the histories written by the Nawa people, by people who were actually there at the time because there's a different cultural understanding there when this is your actual culture you're writing about for a long time the well-known records about her life were from the spanish people writing back about her so that's where some misconceptions and misunderstandings might come from because the spanish people had a lot of reasons to lie about a lot of things so melancine's father was probably a nobleman and her mother was likely an enslaved concubine so where she grew up, like again, modern-day Veracruz region, was on the fringes of the Machica Empire. So in all likelihood, she probably grew up hating them because they were um, kept conquesting and coming by and asking for money and payments and stuff. So although culturally, 
these were all the Nawa people, like they were enemies. So I don't want to like belabor this point, but there was not a concept of like, we are all the indigenous people of Mexico. It's like, this is the known world. And some people got along with some people and some people were your enemies, even though you shared a language and a cultural outlook. To compare it to something else that we've talked about on this podcast, it's maybe similar. Well, it's similar to literally everything. It's like in the story of Fred again, for instance. It's like, yes, they were all the Frankish people, but like this kingdom was at war with this kingdom and this kingdom, even though they were all Christian and they were all speaking the same language, like, and they were all brothers. Like, they didn't get along just because they were from one culture. And especially for Melantine, growing up here, like, nobody knew that Europe existed like this was the known world and like so some people were your allies and some people were your enemies and the machika were her enemies or her villages enemies at some point in her young childhood she was taken from her family probably by the machika and was sold into slavery so i mean we do not know why this happened some options include that maybe her father, who is a nobleman, negotiated with the Machika to avoid an attack by giving them an offering, including his daughter. Or maybe they had lost a battle and were forced to hand over a gift, and she was part of that gift. Um, she's between 8 to 10 years, of, years old at this point. So a very young girl. And if she was chosen as an offering in either of those two scenarios, then that would mean that her community was complicit in her being sold into slavery. Like they would have chosen her and given her away. Another option is she may have been kidnapped. Um, someone later wrote that Malintzine had told that person that she'd been stolen away by merchants. And it's possible, like anything is possible in this situation, but also would she have necessarily even known the circumstances? Like as far as she knew, she was just grabbed and taken and sold into slavery. But if she had been kidnapped, um, that would also mean that someone in her village or her family was maybe complicit in her being taken because given her noble father, like she wouldn't have just been like wandering around by herself, probably. And girls being sold into slavery was not uncommon in this region and era. It was a culture with um, very stratified classes of like aristocrats and then kind of like working people and then enslaved people like these groups were there. They existed. Um, girls were often taken to be traded further east, and they were traded for usually cacao beans or cotton and given to people who needed them for the time-consuming aspects of domestic cotton production. So in other slavery situations, like slavery of African people in America, it was often strong men were taken because there was, you know, the backbreaking agricultural work to do, picking cotton and stuff, but girls were chosen because they needed them to do cotton production based things like not like pulling the cotton from the fields but more like weaving and embroidery and that sort of stuff and they needed a lot of people to do that because this was the main thing that people that was being traded this was um cotton production was a very valuable resource and they needed more and more people to keep up with the demand so she was sold to the chantal maya so the mayan people so she was brought to like a slave trading area where she was bought by the Chantal Maya. And then she was brought to a third place, so Potonchan on the Yucatan Peninsula, where she was worked, she was enslaved for around 10 years. And while she was there, she picked up the Chantal Maya language as well as the substantially different language of Yucatec 
Maya. So the first 10 years of her life were with her family and her village. The second 10 years of her life were enslaved to the Mayan. I also just want to mention that in this story, more so than I think any other I've done, there's a lot of misconceptions about what her narrative was. And so I had never encountered this story before. So it's like reading people debunking theories that I had not encountered before as a theory. So I'm not going to bring up like some people think this, but this is wrong. I'm just going to bring up like the narrative I'm sharing is truly based on Camilla Townsend's work. And it's based on what seems to have happened. I'm not going to debunk stuff, but I will just mention that one of the sort of apocryphal stories about her is that her mother, um, like her father died and then her mother remarried and then sold her into slavery because of something with the, um, the estate and who was going to inherit. But that is not, that doesn't follow culturally with how anything would have worked. So it's probably not true. So there's a lot of stories like that where it's just like, I'm not going to go through and explain a thing just to debunk it. I'm just going to go through and sort of like moving forward through what seems like what actually happened. So um, along with helping with the work in cotton production, Balancine was also like almost definitely used sexually at this time because that was a thing that happened to girls and women who were enslaved. She did not have a child um, at this time. So it could be because she hadn't started menstruating until later. It could be because she like malnutrition, the heavy workload she was dealing with made her um, either not fertile or whatever, or, and, or she would have had access and she would have for sure had access to um, abortion inducing herbs. And the reason that we know for sure she didn't have a child in this era is because enslaved women in this culture were not separated from their children. And when a group of women were needed as an offering, Malanzine was one of 20 women and girls who was selected. And the men they were being given to was the Spanish. So this was in 1519. So Malinzine was probably 19, 20 years old. Had been enslaved for about 10 years. So the leader of the Spanish ships was a chaotic dirtbag named Hernan Cortez, who has so much chaos in his story that I'll be talking about him in an entirely separate episode, um, in an episode of So This Asshole, on my Patreon because... It, Initially, I had a bunch of Hernan Cortez facts in my notes for this episode, and it made it all way too long, but just know that he was the human equivalent of the fire festival and just a truly awful person on the twists and turns, each one worse than the next. And he was just chaos incarnate. And he was the captain of the ship that she was sold to. So Hernan Cortez was Spanish. He spoke Spanish. He didn't speak Nahuatl or any of the Mayan languages. So he was helped out by a translator named Geronimo de Aguilar, who spoke Yucatec Maya. And Geronimo learned that language because he had come over from Spain as a missionary a bit before this, and then he was taken prisoner, and he learned Yucatec Maya from the people who captured him. Malinzin and 19 other enslaved women and girls were brought to the Spanish ship as like a peace offering. They were immediately baptized Christian by the Spanish and given new Spanish names. Malinzin, we don't know what her name was before this, but she her baptismal name was Marina. So she is also known by that name in some sources. So the girls were 
then divided among Cortez's leading men to be their sex slaves, basically. And Malincin was selected to be paired up with the most important man on the ship, Alonso Hernandez de Puerto Carrero. Why was she chosen? Later, people would write about her great beauty, so it might have been she was like the most physically attractive of all the girls there. Maybe being raised by a nobleman gave her a different stature, a different affect from the others. Maybe they could tell that they're just somehow she seemed to them the best one. And so she was given to the most important man. And while she may have been chosen because of her good looks, she, what they didn't know at this point, was she had an extraordinary mind. She was paying attention to everything and working to figure out what these men were about and what this meant for her. Like, what was the situation? And because she could speak Yucatec Maya, she's able to speak with Geronimo de Aguilar and learn from him about what the fuck was going on. Like, who are these people? What is happening? So he would have taught her about the existence of the European continent, um, that the many of the people there worshipped a powerful god and called themselves Christians. She would have learned that the Spanish conquistadors had learned that there was a rich nation somewhere to the west of Mexico and they wanted to find it to get basically take it over and to steal all the gold because by this point there was around 5,000 Spanish people living in the Caribbean and there was not enough wealth for all of them so they needed gold and this um, place to the west of Mexico with lots of money this is Tenochtitlan where the Emperor Moctezuma lived and she probably would have appreciated that Cortez and all the Spanish would be very disappointed and therefore very dangerous and angry if they did not find what they were looking for. So then, a few days into their voyage, the ship was greeted by two canoes piloted by Machica emissaries sent by Moctezuma to reach out to the Spanish. Geronimo attempted to translate, but he spoke Yucatec Maya and the emissaries were speaking Nahuatl. And so he couldn't understand what they were saying. Cortez was like, what's the point of even having you here if you don't speak the language? And then Malincin changed everything by being like, ooh, actually, I understand this language. And this is like, of course, she spoke up. If we look at what her other options were, like what else would she have done? Like, had she not spoken up and this communication didn't happen, she would have remained probably um, concubine to Puerto Carrero who would then control every aspect of her life, who could discard her if he got bored, which could have meant killing her, which could have meant making her a common property of the other men on the ship. Whereas if she helped Cortez, she could earn the respect and gratitude of the men and maybe get to stop being a sex slave. And also these guys were from the Machica representing Moctezuma and she hated the Machica who were the enemies of her family from the village she grew up with, potentially the people who sold her into slavery. And she knew that Cortez wanted to go and attack them. So she was just figured out like, why don't I just help out this guy? So in this era and time, no one would have assumed she owed any loyalty to Moctezuma or to his people. Because again, to quote Camilla Townsend, while she lived, and for many years afterwards, no one expressed surprise at the course she chose. Only modern people who lacked knowledge of her situation would later say she was some sort of traitor. And this is, if you don't know this story and you don't know the context, um, Malin Sin is still and has been considered a traitor to many people, seeing like her siding with the Spanish rather than the indigenous people. But like to her in this era and time, like the indigenous people of Mexico was not a cohesive group or classification. Like she grew up in a place where, yeah, there was a shared cultural outlook. There's a shared language. 
but it was just various groups who all attacked each other and were variously in alliances. Like, she wouldn't have seen them all as one group versus the Spanish. Like, even in the language, in the Nahuatl language, there's not a word meaning all Nahuatl people. Like, the closest is just the word humans. Like, there's not, there wasn't a concept of indigenous people as all one big group. So she wouldn't have seen herself as belonging to the Machica civilization led by Moctezuma, therefore had no loyalty to him, and in fact would have hated him. So, like, of course she stepped up to help Cortez. And so when she volunteered herself, this started off a sort of four-person translation chain. So the emissaries would speak to her in Nahuatl, and then she'd translate to Yucatec Maya to Geronimo, who would then translate into Spanish for Cortez. It took like an hour to have a conversation, like back and forth. But Cortez immediately saw her value. According to his writings, his writings, he took her side after this and promised her more than her liberty if she would help him find and speak to Moctezuma, which meant like he would make her rich, which was what he promised everyone, and he didn't ever really mean it, and he was a dirtbag, and I'll talk about that on a whole other podcast. But anyway, she was when she stepped up, like this changed everything for her. Like literally overnight, she was accorded a whole new level of respect. The men referred to her now as Doña Marina, a title reserved for highborn ladies in Europe. Um, one assumes at this point she's probably also removed as the concubine to Puerto Carrero because she suddenly became this important translator person. And the thing is, she had this amazing instinctive like natural ability to just be an amazing translator because it's not just translating this word means this and this word means this and especially with two languages that are so different like there's may not be a one-to-one word ratio but also just the cultural nuances and also finding ways to to be persuasive when translating so for instance when the ship so they're headed toward Tenochtitlan like they're headed from one coast to the other, to try and find Moctezuma to steal all his gold, basically, which meant they were sailing sometimes, and sometimes they made camp. So at one point when they made camp, a group approached who spoke a language that she didn't know, but she was able to converse with them enough to learn that they had Nahuatl translators living with them, so she was able to talk with their translators. From the translators, she was able to learn more details about the other tribes who hated Moctezuma. So, yeah, so the thing is, Moctezuma was the emperor of the Machica empire, aka the Aztec empire, which he had put together forcibly. Like everyone who wasn't part of that empire hated him. So like all these other groups hated him. So she figured, or she deduced that if Cortez could team up with the tribes who hated Moctezuma, then they could maybe work together to force their way for an in-person meeting with Moctezuma and then presumably take all of his gold. So she, her cultural understanding of the Nawa situation would have helped her explain to, to Cortez, like, these are the, this is not one joint group of people who are all going to team up against you. Like, so many people hate Moctezuma, you can probably find some good allies here from various groups. She was also a capable diplomat. She had the skill to understand the complex subtleties of situations and explain them in persuasive and convincing ways. So as they made their way towards Tenochtitlan, they interacted with various different groups and she would help with trading, she would help with getting information. And with all these groups that they interacted with, Marlene Zine came across as the most important member of the group, like not Cortez, not Geronimo, her. So this is where the name Malinche and also Marlene Zine comes from. And this is because in Nahuatl, the language, there isn't an R sound. 
So remember, she'd been renamed Marina, but they would hear or repeat this as Malina. And as she became more respected, they added the honorific suffix tzin to Malina, which becomes Melinzin. And then the Spanish kind of misheard Melinzin as Melinche, and that's where that name comes from. So then when the Nahuas spoke to Cortez, or when they like referred to Cortez, they referred to him as Malinzi as well, as though her name must be his as well. Like she was the most important and like he was her helper. So she was the reference point. Others in her party took on meaning in relation to her. And the thing was, she was truly the most important person in the entourage. She was the speaker. And culturally, that was a really important leadership role. She made statements on behalf of the entire world, or the entire group. So the Nahuatl word for leader is Tlatuani, which means he who speaks. Like the word leader is intrinsically linked with who is the speaker for the group. So she would clearly be seen as someone with the power of a leader. It was unusual for a woman to be a leader, but not unheard of for a woman or a girl to perform publicly. Like there were women who would were storytellers, entertainers, things like that. So it's not, it was unusual, but it wasn't unheard of. Cortez knew he was dependent on her and he did not like that. When he wrote letters back to Spain, he uh, downplayed her assistance, sometimes didn't mention her at all. Because he knew how lucky he was to have found her, like a person who not only spoke both Nahuatl and Yucatec Mayan, but she also hated the Machica, had a really good mind for like coming up with plans and strategies. And then also because of how she was a daughter of a nobleman, she spoke um, with confidently, with finesse, and she had the ability to understand. There was a whole sort of different register or dialect in Nahuatl for uh, the nobility, which had a different sort of... Um, it was just a different way of speaking and she knew that. So she was able to talk to like the common people, but also she could talk to like really important emissaries and things because she had that knowledge, um, that grammar. She also had this innate psychological ability to figure out what was going on and how to persuade other people to do what she thought they should. And this is potentially partially like she just had a lot of inherent skills. Um, but also she knew her survival was dependent on the Spanish surviving. So she was extra motivated to observe them carefully and understand their culture so she could interpret and explain it to others. Um, unsurprisingly, given what we already know about her facility with languages, uh, with the help of Geronimo, she quickly learned the Spanish language as well. And she also came to understand Spanish culture. This made Geronimo less important to the mission. Like, it didn't have to be a four-person translation chain. Like, he could be eliminated entirely. This bothered him. Um, like, of the Spanish conquistadors who later wrote about Malinzin, every single person only says glowing, wonderful things about her, except for Geronimo, who, which seems like he was jealous of her success. Also, allegedly, he might have had romantic feelings for her, which she did not reciprocate. Like, he literally died angry decades later, slandering her name because she didn't like how he didn't like how she kind of took over his job. So, Melinsine's ability, like, again, it's not just being like a human Google translate. Like, she could code switch. Like, she could talk and change her manners in different ways, depending on who she's talking to. And considering she had, like, just met the Spanish, she figured them out really quickly. So Spanish men who had encountered her, like again, when they were writing later about her, they described her as good humored and courageous 
uh, depending on who she was talking to, like around the Spanish men, she would maybe speak more like coquettishly, sort of like flirtingly because she knew that that's what would appeal to them. But then when she's speaking to the Nawa, she knew that they respected a more formal approach and they would only listen to a nobleman speaking if she spoke with authority. So she's able to like code switch based on who her audience was to be as persuasive as possible. But she wasn't just helpful at, you know, conversations. She was part of a group intent on reaching Tenochtitlan and defeating Moctezuma. So she was also needed to help explain things to the people that they encountered on along the way to get them to join their group. So she had to be also know what would make these groups one aside with Cortez and with her. So there's a group called the Tlaxcala who were a free state who weren't loyal to Moctezuma, but also weren't keen to team up with the Spanish. So the whole group wound up battling against them. And the Tlaxcalans were like really famous and still are well-known, renowned for being excellent warriors. There were a series of ferocious battles. And at one point, Cortez went out on horseback with Malintzin on the same horse with him. And she was shouting out loud that the Spanish offered peace and friendship if the Tlaxcalans would accept it. Somehow, this, and I guess other things, led the fight to stop. Um, this was maybe because the Telex Collins had been trade partners with her, like people from her village, like they knew where she was from and they kind of respected her where she was from, like near Veracruz. So her vibe of being a gracious and authoritative noblewoman was inherently trustworthy to them. Like they kind of knew what she was about. So peace talks began. Malintzin helped Cortez and the Spanish negotiate an alliance with the Telex Collins. And the Tlex Collins um, kept records of this. This is where we get some really memorable visual records of this meeting, which feature, it's like drawings of people and some words on it too. But it kind of shows Malintzin is drawn prominently, like physically larger and taller than the men, just to kind of show this is how important she was to this situation. Like basically in, in all drawings from indigenous people from her time as a diplomat, like other groups like she was always drawn as like huge like just to show like she is so important to this situation um she's also always illustrated in from like document to document she's always dressed beautifully in a different outfit in each image um which suggests that as they conquered or allied with different groups she was given gifts of new outfits she always dressed um in an indigenous style so wearing a sort of blouse top that's called a huipiri Huipili, um, which is like these beautifully embroidered cotton sort of um, square neck, square sleeve sort of tops with a skirt. Although she did also, according to these images, start wearing European footwear rather than the barefoot style of her people. Um, considering how much walking she was doing, I think that makes sense. So they allied with the Tlax Collins, which was major because they were there's a lot of them, and they were really good at fighting. So the ever larger group of allies kept continuing on. So this is giving me a bit of, um, remember in Boudica, where she was marching on to like burn down Rome, and just like she would get more people, and then her just like group got bigger and bigger the closer she got. So with Milizian's help, this group just kept growing and growing. The next big city, like they passed by small villages and stuff, but the next like major area was Cholula, which is a town that was part of the Machica Empire, it's under Moctezuma's control. 
And so they had been instructed by Moctezuma not to feed the Spanish very well and to not be welcoming and to attack the Spanish as they left the city. Maybe. So asterisk. This is a very famous battle. And what happened is like, maybe it was this or maybe it was this. This is just like a clue the movie moment. So Cortez wrote a letter back to Spain, which do we trust him? No, we do not. He claimed that Mylene Seen had some super secret spy skills. And she claimed to have befriended an old noblewoman who lived in Cholula and gained her trust to the point that the woman secretly told Mylene Seen about the ambush plan because she thought Mylene Seen wanted to escape Cortez. And it's possible this is true. It's also possible that the Tlaxcalans planted the idea of the attack like they pretended that the Cholulans were going to attack because the Tlaxcalans and the Cholula were enemies and Tlaxcalans wanted an excuse to attack them. Or Cortez might have claimed to have heard about the ambush to excuse his own actions after the fact, so it doesn't look like he's the aggressor. Or maybe Melancine did tell him this, but she made it all up. Like, we do not know. What we do know is that Cortez's men, um, including their allies, the Tlaxcalans, led a massacre against the people of Cholula. After this happened, uh, Malinche again used her linguistic and mediator slash diplomat skills to broker peace between the Cholulans and the Tlaxcalans and the Spanish. So given how horrifically the Spanish had destroyed Cholula, like they destroyed, they killed so many people. They like destroyed the temples. They destroyed the city. Like it was a horrible massacre. The Cholulans left alive might have felt like they had no other option other than to team up with the Tlaxcalans to please Cortez. So now that's part of the squad. So onward they go. And so the morning of November 8th, 1519, this ever large group of allies reached the shores of Tenochtitlan, which was a city on an island in the middle of a big lake. And so it's the site of modern day Mexico City, which is not on a big lake, but that's because the lake was later drained, but that's where it was. Cortez rode on horseback towards the front of the group with Melintzin walking at his side as they approached the causeway leading to the island city. So these causeways were, it's a city on an island, so like it needs to be connected to the mainland somehow. So these were kind of like roads built up out of the water. So like high dirt roads connecting the island to the mainland. But there were gaps throughout the causeways where there were um, drawbridges were put so that so the drawbridges could go up so the tall ships could pass and then they go back down again so people could use the causeways. So it wasn't like just fully a bridge from one side to the other. It was kind of like pieces, like these dirt roads connected with these little drawbridges. Um, at the edge of the island, hundreds of Machika dignitaries had gathered. They were all wearing bejeweled cloaks. Moctezuma was at the center. His servants were holding a giant gold jewel-encrusted canopy over his head. Um, Malintzin and Cortez and maybe just them, probably other people, were led over across the causeway to meet Moctezuma. So the thing is, Moctezuma was so important and powerful he was also had the luxury of being very isolated, like not just anyone could talk to him, let alone a woman, let alone an enslaved woman. So Malintzin would never, even though this was like the emperor of her, like this empire who were her enemies, she never would have thought like one day I'll talk to him because it's just, he was like unreachable. 
but she kept her cool. Um, she's up to the task, and largely because of her, the meeting seemed to go as smoothly as possible. So apparently Moctezuma and his men were impressed with Malinche or Malintzin's ability to speak both Spanish and Nahuatl, as well as to speak in the like official way you talk to the emperor. According to later records of people who were there for this meeting, Moctezuma spoke in the elaborate courtly speech that was always used with ambassadors. And this is the thing with its own grammar that Malintzin knew how to speak. And so part of this is very, it's like over polite. Um, so there's a code of polite inversion. So lots of stuff where it's like almost like it seems like excessive politeness. You know, a prince might say, oh, I'm unworthy to receive you. I'm just your humble servant when he's actually a prince. So it's like um, really flattering the person who you're talking to and kind of like denigrating yourself. And this led to some, again, um, misunderstandings, miscommunication about what was this meeting like, because it's like, wow, Moctezuma was just like, oh my God, you're so wonderful. Like, I don't deserve you. Why are you here? And people are like, wow, Moctezuma just like surrendered to them right away. It's like, no, that's just how he, that was just how language conventions. Um, anyway, so Malintzin apparently responded with a direct speech. So devoid of polite honorifics or polite reversals. Um, I guess maybe this was her thing about like being straightforward and not cute or coquettish, etc. These are the records of people who saw this meeting happen, but like only Moctezuma and Mancin spoke Nawa, so no one else really knows what either of them said, really. Anyway, the conversation went okay and it ended, nobody was murdered, and Moctezuma welcomed the entire entourage to Tenochtitlan as honored guests. So, just like side note about Tenochtitlan. Island city in the middle of a lake. Um, it was an urban city in the middle of a mostly agricultural world. People who saw the city always remembered first its beauty, largely because of the gardens. So overflowing from ordinary people's flat rooftops, as well as the gardens of the palaces, just like beautiful flowers and plants, birds, like colorful birds. And because the city had been planned and was built all at once, unlike cities in Europe, so like Barcelona or wherever the Spanish were from, like Paris or London. Like it wasn't just like it was, you know, a city that slowly expanded in size over time. Tenochtitlan had been planned and organized. So the buildings were along orderly straight streets, like a nice grid pattern. The palace received fresh running water. A uh, supply was fed by a clay aqueduct, part of a extraordinary waterwork system. Um, the emperor, like it was just Every detail is so interesting. So there was a zoo there filled with animals brought as tribute from subject states, including reptiles, jaguars, wolves, and mountain lions. Um, Moctezuma also maintained a library with hundreds of books. Population and size-wise, Tenochtitlan at its height had more than 140,000 people living there. It was the most densely populated city ever to exist in Mesoamerica. By contrast, at this time, for instance, so again, 140,000 people in Tenochtitlan. London, England had around 50,000 people. Lisbon, Portugal had around 100,000 people. So this is a real urban center. So they're there, they're welcome. And Malintzin was set up in luxurious quarters in the palace. Uh, the brightly painted walls and sterols were alive with carved animals and the images of gods, the floors and beds lined with the softest mats. And again, this is like the city, like the palace of the city of her enemies, like these people who she had grown up hating, a city that lived and thrived by making war with little villages like the one that she was taken from. 
And she had been enslaved for 10 years, but now she was the honored guest. So servants now brought food to her. Um, and she was, again, called upon a lot to figure out living arrangements because she was the only one who could translate for anybody. And so three months go by. The events of these three months are subject to debate. We know the Spanish were toured around the city and they were awful. Um, they would rudely demand gifts wherever they went. They would loot gold jewelry from Moctezuma's personal storehouse to melt it down to make into bricks. And Moctezuma kept asking Melanzine, like, how much like gold and tribute do the Spanish want before they'll leave? Like, when are they going to leave? But they did not leave. Although Cortez did briefly leave. So on a little business trip. So for various reasons, based on him being a dirtbag who basically didn't have permission to have done anything he'd been doing and got in trouble with the Spanish. He had to go, he had to leave Tenochtitlan to meet up with some Spanish people to sort of explain, like, don't worry about it. Like, I know I was only supposed to do, like, exploratory trips and I've been actually conquering everything, but it's fine because everyone just surrendered to me, so I'm not actually conquering. Don't worry about it. He's the worst. And again, I will explain that all on So This Asshole over on Patreon. Anyway, Marlene Sin accompanied him on this business trip because even though he's a Spanish person, going to go speak Spanish to Spanish people. Like, they're going to probably need to trade and stuff along the way. So they left. Um, Twelve days into this business trip, a messenger arrived to reveal that the people of Tenochtitlan were actually rebelling against the Spanish and everything was kind of chaos. So they all headed back. There was a huge multi-day battle in the middle of which Moctezuma was killed. Um, And it was just, like, awful, you know, temples being smashed, etc., Malintzin encouraged the Machica to make peace and to save their own lives, but they refused to stand down. And so the thing is, Malintzin had seen the Spanish fight so many other groups and like just decimate them because they had, you know, cannons and horses and ships. And she knew that they had, like they had superior technology. There was more where they came from, like more Spanish people would arrive anytime. Like she knew that it was inevitable that the Spanish were going to win. So she just tried to convince the Machica to just, like, surrender. Um, Years later, again, the Spanish conquistadors, who saw her in action, agreed one of her greatest skills was the ability to convince other indigenous people of what she could see clearly, that it was useless in the long run to stand against the Spanish. Uh, One of these conquistadors wrote that Melitzin used to talk to the Indians without Cortez being present and then would make them come in peace. So, like, she knew how to get through to them, usually, but at this point, even her skills failed because emotions were just running so high. To the point that the only possibility for the Spanish was to escape, like, they were trapped on this island, being hunted down by people who hated them. So, but remember the causeways. They had all been ruined, um, except for one but the bridges connecting the pieces of causeway had been destroyed. So the Spanish had to make a portable bridge. So they spent all night making a little portable bridge. And then before midnight, they headed out to try and escape to the mainland. Malintzin almost definitely would have been wearing a breastplate and helmet because she wore those in other battles. And this was like a pretty important situation. And she was a valuable member of the group. Like she, if she died, what were they going to do? So turns out their portable bridge did not work so they had to they just use like wooden beams to go from causeway to causeway and then so the causeways were like i don't know how high but like well above the water level so machika warriors and canoes began attacking them from every direction like including below 
and lots and lots of Spanish people died. All the gold they were trying to take fell into the lake. Um, but Malincine and Cortez both survived. This whole event became known to the Spanish survivors as Noche Triste, or the Night of Sorrows. So, Malincine and the others retreated back to Tlaxcala, where, so they'd been in Tenochtitlan for what, like three months or something, three, four months. But when they got back to Tlaxcala, uh, it had been affected by smallpox. So the king and thousands of people had all died of smallpox. So I did that mini episode early in pandemic days about the history of smallpox vaccination. And I think I mentioned in that people in Mesoamerica didn't, they were not immune to smallpox because in large part, just the way that they they lived, they didn't live with their livestock like people in Europe did or it had been doing for a long time so people in europe had developed some people in europe had developed some immunity to cowpox which is related to smallpox so they had or they had largely like run into it in their lives but the disease had never been in mesoamerica before so with no immunity smallpox sort of decimating the indigenous population of mesoamerica within a hundred years between the conquests and smallpox, something like 90%, like 90% of the indigenous population would die. So note that this year, 1520, was noted in Tlaxcalan history, not as the year the Spanish came, but as the year the smallpox came, because that was so much more affecting to their situation. Smallpox, horrible disease. It's a slow, painful, awful death. So in addition to smallpox affecting everybody, the Spanish survivors who had survived the Noche Triste all had lots of injuries. They were getting gangrene and things. For instance, Cortez had to have two fingers from his left hand amputated, I guess, because of gangrene. So they were literally just nursing their wounds, as were the people in Tenochtitlan, I think. But while this happened and this kind of like pause between battles, Malin Zin, who seems to have been uninjured as far as I know, was kept busy mediating between both sides about what to do next. Most of the Tlaxcalan leaders just wanted to kill the Spanish and get rid of them. But Malinzin kept explaining, like, if you kill these guys, like, there's lots more where they came from. There's, like, the continent of Europe. Like, the best course for Tlaxcalans would be to cement an alliance with the Spanish, use the victory that they would ultimately attain to gain the upper hand over Tenochtitlan. If the Tlaxcalans could hold fast in their alliance with the Spanish, the Machica could be destroyed, and the endless wars between city-states would cease forever. So remember, again, like, the Spanish came into a situation where there were these endless wars. Like, the city-states, like, all these different groups were always fighting each other and had been for such a long time, and it was just a constant state of war. So it's not like the Spanish came and brought war with them. It's just, like, one more group who's also battling. So if one group could take control then maybe the battling would stop. And eventually the Tlaxcalans agreed with her and continued to ally with the Spanish. This all went on for like the sort of like nursing their wounds slash million scene, trying to convince people of stuff for about 20 days, after which Spanish and their allies headed back to Tenochtitlan to take the city for real. So then three months of war of just battling, battling, Malincine was called upon regularly to accompany Cortez on talks to parley with the enemies to try and figure out some terms to work together again. At one point, like mid-battle, I guess, um, warriors from Tenochtitlan shouted to the Spanish, or not to the Spanish allies, they shouted to the people they were fighting, maybe the Tlaxcalans, like, basically people from Tenochtitlan were like, where's Malincine? Can we talk to her? So she came, 
and they offered full peace, but only if the Spanish promised to return back to Europe. The Spanish refused. Talks of compromise came to nothing. The Spanish only wanted capitulation. The Machica would rather die than capitulate. And in time, most of them did die between battles and smallpox. So on August 13th, Cuauhtemoc, who is the new emperor who taken over after Moctezuma, allowed himself to be taken, presumably because he'd run out of warriors to fight for him. And then Cortes and the Spanish laid claim to Tenochtitlan, which was now this beautiful city, now completely destroyed, all in ruins. So he set up in across the lake and the mainland in the captured city of Coyoacan, living in the palace there. And Malincin joined him there. And so from there, from like across the lake, Cortes oversaw the rebuilding of Tenochtitlan, which was redone in a European style. So like European style building. So the indigenous people were who were there, who were good at building, were trained in how to build in this style. Malincin um, at this point was overseeing her own household. Oh, also Cortez's wife had arrived from Cuba. So he was there with his wife, Catalina. Malincine was off in her own house, where it seems like she started her own secret storefront out of her quarters in the palace. Despite her growing power, like her power, which is only getting bigger, she was still vulnerable and may have wanted to amass whatever wealth she could for herself, like, because who knows what's going to happen next. A few years later, in a totally unrelated matter, Cortez did say, that there had been extra goods brought to their house or to the house in Coyoacan, but they were from the Nahua people and intended for Malincin. These gifts included fruits, herbal incense, and tobacco, which she liked to smoke. I said that a bit backwards. So Malincin and Cortez lived together in the palace until his wife Catalina returned, at which point she started overseeing her own household. But then Catalina, her stay there was short-lived because Cortez murdered her or maybe... She died of some other reason, but for some reason, she was strangled to death after arguing with Cortez and being alone with him in his bedroom. So Malincin gave birth to a child who is the father of the child, Cortez. So this is another big sort of point of debate where it's like, was she his lover? Was she his sex slave? Like, were they, had they been having an affair this whole time? Did they just have a one night stand? Did he like assault her like we do not know the situation and i'm not going to speculate on it because we don't know and this is a big point of debate about her legacy what we do know is that they lived together for a while and then nine months later malincine gave birth to a child and cortez was the father so the son was named martin and unusually for the illegitimate child of a spanish nobleman martin was given his father's surname cortez and he was seen as cortez's heir because he was his first son and then i guess tenochtitlan kept being rebuilt she was running her store raising her little toddler and then two years later cortez was like guess what i'm going to honduras and you're coming with me so honduras is like in central america it's like i looked on google maps it's like because i was just wondering how long does it take to walk from mexico city to honduras and now with like roads and things it's like a couple days but for them there was not roads and things in fact it was jungle and mountains but the thing is that one of cortez's former captains had just like gone rogue taken over honduras in his own name instead of like for spain and so cortez's job was to go back and like reclaim honduras for spain but he knew he needed malincine to make it there and back 
to communicate and also just her diplomatic skills, etc. So by now, Valentine had a three-year-old son and a apparently thriving business. So why would she agree to go? Well, partially, like, did she have a choice? Secondly, she knew that Cortez couldn't go without her. So I think it's not, she wouldn't have been like, no, I don't want to go. But she's like, okay, I have no choice in this matter, but I'm going to make him work for it. So she got as much as she could out of him before agreeing to join him. And of course she did. Like the trip was going to be lengthy, probably deadly. She had better things to do than go overland through the jungles and mountains of Maya country, areas in which she had been previously enslaved and where there were crocodiles and other dangers, including the weather. But she was like, okay, I will go with you if you provide me with a noble Spanish husband and if I can marry that husband before the expedition heads off because Cortez was a liar and she wanted to make sure that she got this right away. And she demanded that as a dowry for the marriage, she should be given control over Oluta, the village where she'd been born. And showing how much Cortez truly needed her, he agreed to all of this. So Malincin was married before they left. Her husband was also going on the trip because he was one of Cortez's highest ranking officers. So her husband was named Juan Jaramillo. And by marrying him, Melancine was now the wife of a Spanish nobleman, no longer the single mother of an illegitimate child. She was now a Spanish lady with all the rights accorded to this position. And at the beginning of the trip, so they paused in Oluta to hang out in Melancine's hometown where she could reunite with the people she grew up with. The local indigenous lords and kings were summoned and Malincine addressed them. She spoke with people there. Perhaps it was a younger brother, maybe even her mother, like the people who she was with didn't speak Nahuatl, so they don't know who she's talking to exactly. But whoever she saw and whatever she said, it seems she got to see who she wanted and to tell them what she wanted to say. Like the last time she was there, she had been eight, ten years old and was taken away to be enslaved. And then she comes back and she's wearing these beautiful outfits. She's married to a Spanish nobleman. She's like being drawn so big in all the pictures. Like she's become so important since she was last there. Oh, important to note because Cortez was, remember last time he left, he left Tenochtitlan, like it all went into revolt. So he's worried that the Machica would rise up and revolt against him if he left. So that's why he made the emperor come along with them, which is like, okay. So that's Cuauhtémoc. Again, the Moctezuma's successor slash cousin. And then in another sort of like highly divisive situation, midway through the trip to Honduras, Cortes executed Cuauhtémoc. He later claimed that Cuauhtémoc had hatched a plot against him, but it may have been a misunderstanding. Like maybe Cuauhtémoc was just like joking, but someone took it seriously. Anyway, Cortes, who is like, I can't emphasize enough, like so awful. He had each of the men involved in the, quote, conspiracy tortured separately. Malincine would have had to translate the words they uttered as they were being tortured. Awful. By the time they got to Honduras, the captain who had gone rogue had already was dead. And so Cortez pretty easily took back control. And then they headed back to Mexico, where, to no one's surprise, obviously rebellion was breaking out again because this was just not a stable situation. And somewhere in there, Malincine, like after the Honduras thing, she gave birth to uh, her first child with her husband, Jaramillo, which was a girl named Maria. As you may not be surprised to find out based on everything I've said so far about Cortez, he did not have the authority to actually give Malincine 
like to make her the governor of over any land. In fact, he didn't have the authority to give anyone control over any land. He was just like making this up as he went. But the marriage was still real. And being married to Jaramillo provided security for Malincine and her daughter Maria. So her son Martin, who was by now like six years old. So while they were in Honduras, Martin had been staying with Cortez's cousin. And it was decided that he would stay there because just for stability for him. So he would stay in the household where he was. But Malincine, Jaramillo, and Maria were like a little family unit. They moved onto a plot of land near the main square. And in 1528, they were given land near the woods of Chapultepec to build another home, plant an orchard, and graze their sheep. So she's just like, everything's been chaos. Like the first 10 years of her life, growing up, she's a kid. Second 10 years of her life, enslaved. And then this is like eight years into this like next third of her life. She's just like finally like able to just like live a little domestic thing, have a family, have an orchard. We don't know what their relationship was like. Like, we know so little about anything. But here's what we do know. So from later sources who remembered, like, who knew them when they were together, we know that Jaramillo's friends teased him for marrying Malincine, not because she was Nawa, because at this point, the Nawa noble, like, um, aristocrats were still really heavily valued. It wasn't, they didn't look down on her because she was indigenous. But they made fun of him for marrying her because she was a strong, independent woman who ran around translating. And the Spanish people were in this highly patriarchal society where, like, the wife was supposed to be quiet and whatever. And Malincine was just, like, doing her own thing. So by marrying her, Jaramillo accepted having to put up with these sorts of jokes. Um, and apparently he was not afraid of the jokes or of marrying her, which speaks well of him. So Martine, her son, is six. And he was... He and Cortez were heading back to Spain so he could be legitimized by the Pope and made his official heir. So she was allowed, like, thank you for allowing her to say goodbye to him. And so he pieced off to Spain. And then, I'm sorry for the suddenness of this, a few months later, Malincine died of probably smallpox. By January of 1529, she was recorded as dead. Um, her daughter Maria would have been around three years old, so anticlimactic there story guess what not done so i'm going to talk a bit about her children because that ex that leads us into like the stuff about her legacy etc so maria her daughter lived entirely as a spanish woman but she never forgot who her mother was and was proud to speak her name um juan jaramillo remarried a wealthy Spanish noblewoman called Beatrice who treated Maria cruelly as stepmother. So it's a real Cinderella situation. When Maria was around 14 years old, she fell for a guy named Don Luis, but her father said she was too young to marry. To force her father's hand, Don Luis spread a rumor that he'd had an amorous interlude with Maria and to save the family dishonor, they were permitted to marry. So not quite a secret sexy marriage, but like scandalous for sure. Um, she had some miscarriages, stillbirths, etc. And then at age 20, Maria had a son who survived named Pedro. She eventually had one more surviving child. And then after Jaramillo died, stop me if you've heard this before, he left a family with lots of debts. And there's a whole complex situation with his estate planning where it's like how much the estate would go to Maria and how much would go to his wife Beatrice. So Beatrice didn't have any children. So Jaramillo's only heir 
was Maria, but Beatrice was like, I only married him for his money, so I should get the money. This led to a lengthy court battle, like 20 years long. And this is actually where we get a lot of the information about Madeleine Seen. Because um, part of the court case was Beatrice being like, Maria shouldn't get anything. Her mother was just this like trashy, like indigenous person. So that's where a lot of the conquistadors would be like, oh no, actually Madeleine Seen was great. Like she was great. Like what a cool person she was. Like Beatrice tried to find people who testify Madeleine Seen like was awful and not great. But everyone was like, actually she was great. So... 1562, so this is 35 years later, Martin returned from Spain um, along with his siblings. So Hernan Cortez had married again in Spain and had some more sons. Weirdly or kind of grossly, he called his illegitimate, his legitimate other son also Martin. So anyway, Martin came with his brother Martin and the other Cortez bros. They came back to Mexico because Hernan Cortez had died and he wanted to be, his remains to be brought to Mexico. So Martina and Maria reunited for the first time since they were like three and six. But within months of his arrival, Maria died age 39. She'd had various health issues. Martin would end up eventually exiled from Mexico for his own scandalous reasons. And he returned to Spain, where he eventually died in 1595, aged around 70. And he had gotten married and had kids. And his son, Fernando, chose to return to Mexico, where he received a government position in Veracruz, which was near where Malincine had been born, who was his grandmother. And Fernando had heard about Malincine from Martin and wrote about her proudly. So, like, Malincine's children and grandchildren, like, knew about her and, like, shared who she was and how she was cool. Maria's son, Pedro, grew up in Spain, but then also returned to Mexico and married. He had four children, all of whom were also raised knowing how impressive their grandmother, Malincine, had been. And apparently this family tree continues still today in Mexico. There's people who are the descendants of all these people. So cultural impact. So no, none of the Spanish people other than Geronimo de Aguilar, who just had sore feelings, ever turned on Malincine or said anything disparaging about her. Those who knew her remembered her unfailing courage and good humor in all circumstances. Some quotes from them. I think these are from the court trials. Um, one of them wrote, after our Lord God, it was she who caused new Spain to be one. Another said, without her, we couldn't do anything. Another wrote, if it wasn't for her, we wouldn't have won this land. Like they all knew how vital she was to everything that happened. But so in the 200 years after Malianzine's death, so like getting into the like 1800s, the image of an indigenous person helping colonizers became so common it didn't merit notice as so many people now took on the sort of job she had done. So she was at the time, like she was the person who spoke Spanish and Nawa, but then lots and lots and lots of indigenous people learned Spanish. And so it stopped being notable what she had done because so many other people were doing the same job. And then as Mexican nationalism grew in the 1800s and then with the Mexican revolution, like this paved the way for the Mexican revolution of the early 1900s, anti Malinche sentiment grew. So in 1826, an anonymous novel is published called Chico Tencal, Chico Tencat. And Malincine appears in this as a character called Marina. And she was suddenly, this is, I think, the first time she was presented as a lustful, conniving traitor. So she was seen as a scapegoat, or she became a scapegoat for colonization in general. And was viewed as an indigenous woman whose lust for the white man led her to betray an entire nation. Which again, like, 
bear in mind when she sided with Cortez, she wouldn't have known that this was going to decimate all indigenous population in all of Mexico along with smallpox. But also there wasn't a unified indigenous people for her to betray. Um, so her legacy began to solidify like from this point on as a sort of combination of like Eve from the story of Adam and Eve in the Bible, who like famously was seduced by the snake and then banished. I'm sorry. I don't know the story. Um, you know, all people to sin or whatever. But she's also sort of like the snake from that story, like the sort of like tempting evil person. So she was seen as this highly sexualized woman who chose lust over her own people. She was and still is sometimes referred to as La Chingada, which is a um, insulting term in Mexican Spanish. That means basically the one who was fucked. Like, not like, oh, that, like, oh, that person was fucked over, but like literally like penetrated like this like fucked woman she has been called the mexican eve cortez's whore there are terms in i think it's in mexican spanish but maybe other places too um malinchismo and malinchista are terms derived from the name la malinche and this is an insult that means you have betrayed your country so you're a traitor like giving up the native for the foreign sort of like a sellout in the 1970s, so really, Malintzin became the scapegoat, like the fall guy for the Spanish having taken over Mexico, where it's like, there's a lot of reasons why that happened. It wasn't, anyway, but it's easy to blame a woman, especially when she had the love child of a conqueror. So in the 1970s, Mexican and Mexican-American feminists came to question this interpretation. She had been enslaved by her own people, so why would she side with them? What should she have, like, what should she have done when she was given into the hands of armed Spanish men? Like, how could she, like, rather than seeing her as a devious schemer, they suggested we acknowledge that she was a victim. In the 1980s and 1990s, some writers adjusted this view yet again, arguing that she was not only victimized like maybe she was a victim and a schemer like after all she was clearly resourceful and clever and a survivor who did what she could within her own context to preserve herself in a chaotic and ever-changing situation and then it's like what is the responsibility of one person like in terms of her one of the podcasts i listened to is talking about um as a feminist icon i think it was the project 1520 podcast where it's like is she a fem like i would not the whole idea of a feminist icon is problematic to begin with, but like she oversaw a lot of awful stuff happening to men and happening to women. Like she oversaw indigenous people being turned into like being enslaved. Like, but if she was like, you know what, I'm going to stand up for all women. Like she would have just been killed. So like what was within the scope of what she was possible for her to do. And what she did was she ensured her own survival, um, try to make the best life she could for her children i don't know like i don't think we should put it on her it's like anyway it's this is the broader cultural context that other podcasts that i am recommending get into a bit more so um there's also the question of like was she the only person who could have done what she did would someone else in a similar situation necessarily not have done the same thing she was crucial in the conquest and clearly was a strong-willed and very intelligent person 
not like not anyone could have succeeded in translation as well as she had like she had these instinctive understanding of how to persuade people how to talk to different groups she picked up languages really well she had all these skills but i'm sure other people there could have had those skills too um like eventually it seems like just because of the technological differences and the numbers like the spanish would have taken over mexico regardless seemingly like if it wasn't her with Cortez, it might have been some other Spanish man with some other Nawa woman and had a similar effect, potentially. This is um, in The Fifth Son, Camilla Townsend's book. She explains really well about how the technological advances. It's not like one culture was better than the other culture. And it was that the Spanish had superior um, technology and weapons, like cannons. Um, muskets and this isn't because they were like more it wasn't because they were better or anything like all has to do with geography and like how long agriculture had been a thing in like Eurasia versus how long it had been in the Americas like the longer a society is in one place which society starts doing once there's farming because you can't move around as much then you get the technological innovation and just geographically just like the way plants work like that hadn't happened in the Americas until later than it had happened in Europe. So just the situation that it was, was the Spanish just had superior technology. They had a whole bunch of people that could come over. And also the people of Mexico, like the Mayans, um, the Machica Empire, and then also the Nahua in general, like they were not an aligned force if they had been maybe they would have had a better chance but cortez was able to with the help of melancene to take advantage of these divisions to break them up so they weren't just one two two sides in the war there's all these different teams because we have no records of melancene's own like no diaries no letters it's easy slash tempting to ascribe all kinds of motivations onto what she did like why did she do what she did and this is partly why she's been elevated from a historical person to like a folklore, like mythic presence, because we know so little about who she really was. So it's easy to sort of like make her represent whatever you want her to represent. And that's like this podcast I'm trying to say, like, here's the facts of like what we know of her life. But this is, I can't not get into this cultural context. So Camilla Townsend says, such figures are not people, but rather symbols, and hence can become lightning rods. In the best case, perhaps, they are not reviled, but still remain less than fully human in the popular imagination. It is, after all, hard to take seriously characters who never say anything. Our books tend to be full of the profound and witty thoughts of colonizers and others who once held pens in their hands, while slaves, Indians, and other non-literate figures remain shadowy and relatively uninteresting one-dimensional beings, even in the most sympathetic of studies. So the sort of take of Malintzine as La Malinche, as this villain, um, is it sort of coincides with a lot of folktales and to the point that she her story has been sort of associated with the folkloric ghost of La Llorona, aka the crying woman, and the Monsters podcast has a great episode about La Llorona. So according to legend La Llorona, this ghost woman, so apparently she drowned her children in a river and then drowned herself after seeing what she had done. She haunts near bodies of water, weeping and looking for her dead children, and causes misfortune and death to those who get too close. In 
some incarnations of the legend, La Llorona is Malintzin, or La Malinche, who felt jilted when Cortez left her for his wife. When she learns he planned to send Martin back to Spain, she killed her son than herself rather than be separated from him. But, of course, Malintzin did not lose her children. Thanks largely to her efforts, they survived. Their youth became adults, won places for themselves in the world of conquerors, and lived to have children of their own. So, a mythical Malintzin figures in countless local indigenous dances across Mexico. Um, sometimes in these performances, there's a character, there's separate characters. One is Doña Marina, who is Cortez's translator, while the woman named Malinche is a powerful consort, sometimes paired with Cortez and sometimes with the indigenous king. Um, in some of these dances, the character of La Malinche has all the attributes of a goddess. So she's like, her story is really taken on all this other cultural meaning. Which, so you won't be surprised to hear, that La Malinche is a character in numerous books and films, sometimes as a heroine, sometimes as a victim, sometimes as a seductress, or a traitor, or a pawn. She's been the subject of operas, musicals, plays, basically any kind of storytelling that has ever existed. There's been a La Malinche retelling. More recently, there's a series on Amazon Prime called Hernan, which is about this whole time period. And Malinche is there in a character. There's also a series, I think you can find it on YouTube, um, Spanish language series called Malinche, um, which tells her story and presents her like as a person. And then for the first time for a person we've talked about in vulgar history, in the Star Trek universe, there is a starship called the USS Malinche. This appeared in an episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine because um, one of the writers or producers is from Mexico City. And just as I was researching this, I want to let you know, so a new exhibit just opened February 2022 um, at the Denver Art Museum in Colorado. So if you're near there, check it out and then slash also let me know and then slash also send me pictures if you're allowed to take pictures. So this exhibition sounds really, really, really interesting. So it interrogates her legacy through an artistic lens. The exhibition is named Trader Survivor Icon, The Legacy of La Malinche. The curator, Victoria I. Lyle, says, In examining and presenting the legacy of Malinche from the 16th century through today, we hope to illuminate the multifaceted image of a woman unable to share her own story, allowing visitors to form their own impressions of who she was and the struggle she faced. Uh, one of the show's highlights is an artwork by Cecilia Alvarez called La Malinche Tania Sus Razones from 1995, which depicts a tearful Malinche in the foreground and in the background, a poly, polyptic, so not a triptych, a polyptych, images of her enslavement and trade to Cortez behind her. So the title of this artwork means Malinche had her reasons, which I love. This painting's title hints at a newfound empathy for the controversial figure. So in terms of scoring, I'm really passing this on to Polly, who... I was just like trying to figure the scores and I was going back and forth. I'm like, what do you think about this? So here is how we're going to score her. So scandaliciousness. Here's what Polly says. I think that taking the time she lived into consideration, I give her a seven or an eight because she went from being a slave to being the most powerful woman in New Spain. She also dared to talk to Mo Moctezuma, which very few people were allowed to do, let alone look at him. And I think these are all wonderful points. Like often in scandaliciousness, we're looking at like, ooh, did she have like, did she poison somebody? Did she have affairs? And there's a gajillion um, theories that she did, all those things. But in terms of her era and time, like 
what she did would have been scandalous to everybody around her. So I'm going to give her a seven for scandaliciousness. Uh, next is the scheminess, which I feel in terms of just the word and like the cultural context of this, I feel like we're looking at her cleverness, her resourcefulness, not like is she this like evil temptress, but you know what I mean by scheminess on this podcast. Polly says, I'd give her a nine, an eight or a nine. Yes, she totally did it out of survival because as a slave, she had no choice, but she also hated the Machika. So in a sense, I feel like it was a type of revenge for her. And almost all the codex the Machika left behind, she's always depicted as ahead of Cortez, taller than Cortez, or Cortez appears as being quiet. The usual interpretation is that she was really calling the shots, making the deals or alliances. I think her scheminess is great. I think she was so smart and so clever and made the best out of what was going on and really found ways to turn what was going on to her personal advantage, whether that was teaming with the Spanish or teaming with Cortez. Like she, she saw what was going on and was able to make it work for her. So that's a nine for scheminess, I think. Significance was the one where I was just like, really like, I can't, I am not capable of understanding this because I'm not from this culture and I don't understand the context. So Polly says, significance is definitely a 10. She's such a prevalent historical figure in Mexican history, even though she wasn't the only so this asshole Cortez captured Tenochtitlan. Without her, he would not have gotten to the point where he had enough resources and allies to do it. Yeah, so the significance, I mean, 10. I would go with like 10 plus if that was available to us because the reverberations of her actions are one thing but then also just the way that she is like woven so deeply into mexican culture it's like so much significance sexism so sexism polly suggests a nine or a ten her condition as a slave made it even worse because i think she ultimately was raped in a sense she was used to be used as an item and it was a struggle for her to negotiate with the local rulers because she was a woman um, and then she definitely knew her value by the end of her life, but Cortez also used a child as a sort of blackmail, ultimately took Martine away from her. Like she had as much power as she could get in this world, but it's not, it's not that much power. So I'm going to say 9.5 for sexism. So when we add this all up, we get, oh my goodness, 35.5, which is the third highest score ever 35.5 so on the fredigan memorial scandal to scale fredigan has 38 queen margot 37.5 malintzine 35.5 joan of naples 33 and i feel this is entirely appropriate because of all the reasons we just talked about and then it's wild when you're like and all this happened and then she died age 29 and you're like wait what just happened like her life, I talked about it a few times. It's like in thirds, right? Where it's like the first 10 years she was at home with her family. And then the second 10 years she was enslaved. And then the third 10 years was just everything we just talked about, like with the Spanish ending with her dying of smallpox. Like so much happened. Like if you look at the, um, just a sec, I have like a timeline. How much happened? How much her world changed from the time she was a kid to the time that she passed away? in such a short period of time. So she was born, let me just see. So Malintzin was born around 1500. So she was born around the same year that Saida El-Hura got married. Saida El-Hura was 15 when Malintzin 
was born. Malinche died 1529. So Saida el reigned for like, or reigned, or yeah, was governor for like another 30 years. Like Malinsin was born, lived her whole life and died. And Saida el still lived 30 more years after that. Like it's such a brief yet action-packed period of time with such reverberations, both in like world historic events, but then also in this cultural context. Thank you again so much to Polly for bringing this story to my attention. It's such, I've never ever studied before I started preparing for this episode anything about Mexican history, which was clearly a hole in my research to begin with. And then just the sort of just surrounding myself with all this information. Like there's so much, there's so much more I want to read about. I understand the context so much better, just about like Mexican culture now. Um yeah and also i appreciate seeing this side of things because we did the um isabel of castile episode a couple seasons ago where it's kind of like and then she paid for christopher columbus to go over and then like you know genocide happened so to see like what the real world effects are of all of that is really i think important to see like a a personal story of like how this affected one person's life and yeah if you want to learn more about hernan cortez join the patreon because I'll be doing a whole, it'll probably be at least this long, the episode about him, because there's just a lot to discuss. Of I do not find anyone in her story worthy of the Lady Jane Seymour Memorial Award for Outstanding Supporting Performance. Juan Jaramillo seems okay, but I don't know enough about him to give him that. Um, just a couple of reminders. So if you go to vulgarhistory.com, I've got all the show notes there, as well as there's a form, like if you click on contact, you can suggest people who you think would be good to discuss on the podcast or send me feedback about the podcast or whatever you want. Uh, if you go to vulgarhistory.store, vulgarhistory.store, you can find all of our Vulgar History merch, um, including a special season five design. It says tits out is for everybody because that's really what I want us to all take away from the season. Um, and when you're on the store, you can use code tits out for free U.S. shipping or tits out 10 for 10% off. I've mentioned the Patreon a few times. So that's if you go to patreon.com slash annfosterwriter. That's where you can pledge various amounts to get various things. The top tier is the Glorianas, and that's where you get to listen to the bonus episodes. Every month I do the one episode of So This Asshole. Hernan, like no one has deserved one of these episodes more than Hernan Cortez has after all the stuff I've had to read about him. But then also Vulgar Peace Theater episodes are there. That's where we've done uh, me, Lana Wood Johnson, and Elson Epstein talk about costume dramas. We've done Shakespeare in Love, Amadeus. It's a good time. Anyway, that's that. You can follow slash DM me on Instagram or at Vulgar History Pod. After every episode, I usually post some stuff in the stories there too, just like polls to get your thoughts about various things, pictures and stuff. And then on Twitter, we're at Vulgar History. You can also email me if you feel like that. I don't know. Suggestions of people to talk about, feedback. That's vulgarhistorypod at gmail.com. That's everything. This was such an interesting subject. I can't recommend enough. Um, Camilla Townsend's two books so Malintzen's Choices and then also Fifth Son A New History of the Aztecs I'll put those links in the show notes too Monstra's podcast the Project 1521 podcast yeah so keep your mask on keep your tits out and I'll talk to you all next time
Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.